Hello and welcome to History West Midlands, our regular in-depth examination of various aspects of the Black Country. Today we're on location at the very fringes of the Southwest Black Country as guests of the Ruskin Centre and Glasshouse College in Amblecote. Situated at the heart of the established glass industry, the centre is playing host to the International Festival of Glass and Biennale Glass Exhibition. Held every alternate year, the festival celebrates glass in all its forms and there's no better location to hold it than here in the very epicentre of the Starbridge glass industry. There's been some excitement recently with an archaeological dig that has revealed much about the area's glassmaking past. And with me is Kate Churchill, who's Principal Archaeologist for Nexus Heritage. Kate, thank you for your time. Long before this was a visitor centre, many centuries ago, there were in fact two glassworks here side by side. Can you give us a brief history of what this site was once all about and what it represented? Yes, certainly. So there were two glassworks, as you've said. Uh, one was called Colborne Hill and one was called Colborne Brook. Interestingly, the Colborne Brook is up on the hill. Colborne Hill is down below. Both had furnaces that were built, cones that were built in the 1690s. But one of them fell over in 1785, and we know that because we've got a newspaper article that details the collapse and no one was hurt. It was then thought to have been lost because Colborne Hill House was built and it was assumed that it was destroyed as part of the house. But the glass industry continued on at Colborne Hill, where it is thought that the same cone continued in use. Another one was built adjacent to it, and that continued into the mid-20th century. In the early 20th century, it became a warehouse, but then it slowly went out of use, and then it was demolished. Quite a check in history. How significant a role do you think this very site played within the great pantheon of Starbridge Glass? Well, there's quite a lot of cones recorded in the 18th, 19th century in Amblecote and in Stourbridge. So you could say that they're just two or three of many cones in the area. However, what makes this site very interesting is what happened at Colborne Hill Glassworks. It continued right through to the 1960s. So when you excavate a cone today you tend to find a cone that's mostly covered in concrete. It's got all the technology that was used at the latter stages of the cone. So you don't find out very much about what happened at the early stages, the development of glass on an industrial scale. And that's what we have in the car park of the Glasshouse College here. The cone, we found it during an excavation looking at Colborne Hill House, and we found that the cone is very well preserved. The tunnels that went underneath the furnace are still very much intact. The furnace foundations are there. We've got floors. In fact, we've got three layers of flooring. We've got the early dirt working floor. That was then replaced by a stone floor. And then we've got the brick floor, all in a space of 100 years before it fell over. And because it collapsed, it's been completely preserved from 1785. So that gives us a window to see what was happening in 1785, so the early glassmaking process. This may possibly cause us to rethink the early history of Starbridge Glass, I gather. Yes, it does. Up in the car park, so Colborne Brook Cone, the one that fell over in 1785, although we've only excavated half of the cone, the rest of it has been preserved for future excavation, there's a central flue and the furnace itself is off to one side. Now, this is quite unusual. Usually the furnace is in the centre and the flue runs through it. And our thinking is that there was, in fact, two furnaces. There was a central flue and then two furnaces either side of the flue. 
whether they were making different materials or just trying to increase production. But it's a different way. In fact, it's a very early medieval way of heating glass. So we're waiting for the analysis of the glass to come back so that we can find out more about what people were doing in the 17th and 18th centuries. Kay Churchill, Principal Archaeologist for Nexus Heritage. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And indeed, I turn to that analyst, uh, Vanessa Castagnino. Have I said that right? Yes, you have, Graham. <laughs> Vanessa is a material specialist with Nexus Heritage and is the lady who has done the analysis on the samples Kate was talking about. Vanessa, what are they? What's the analysis? There were three particular floors, flooring levels, shall we say. There's a dirt working floor, which seemed to be the original floor. Then there was a flagstone floor and then a brick flooring. The interesting aspect to that is there seemed to be glass of different composition, different colour that were on each of those floors. But the most interesting floor was actually the dirt working floor. We thought that we'd basically just hit the base and there was nothing there. And over the space of a very, very heavy, rainy afternoon, we came back the next morning and there was this fantastic speckled floor, green speckled floor. So I spent a day and a half literally on my hands and knees picking pieces of glassworking evidence and glassworking waste, basically, out of this floor. So I took that away for analysis, and that came back as what is commonly known as HLLA glass, which is a high lime, low alkali glass. Nice solid glass of the period, but used in particular to make green glass bottles. The green colour comes from the iron content in the sand, so the sand, the darker green it is, relates very much to the iron-rich composition of the sand. It's a cheap way of making bottles. Were you able to date it accurately? Yes, pretty much so. We seem to have two phases of glass bottle construction, one that starts from the beginning of the cone in 1691 up to about 1700, maybe 1710, and then a second phase of glass construction that goes up to about 1750. Composition pretty much hits it on the nail from previous research done into glass bottles. We know from the 1699 map related to that cone, it says it's a bottle and flint works. So they're making flint glass fairly early. But on the original floor, there's no evidence of it. Flint glass? Crystal glass. So well, leaded glass. So they're making that from 1699. It's there on the map. But there's no evidence on the original floor. So what's sort of objects have you found that have caused you to get excited? I think the original floor more than anything else because it's lovely to see what they started off with. The leaded glass that we found on the upper floor seems to be of a very high composition. It's somewhere between about 38 weight percent to 42 weight percent lead. That's heavy duty that stuff. That is high, isn't it? It is indeed. And I think what seems to be going on here is there's an awful lot of experimentation the one thing that I'm disappointed with is that I've got no broad glass. I've no window glass. So that's not related to the cone at all. And yet that was something that the glassmakers here were experimenting with. But there is none within the assemblages. I should point out that full lead crystal, as it's now known, is normally round about 30% lead oxide, isn't it? Yes, indeed. So what they were doing was really, you know, quite considerable. What has all this work added to our knowledge of the pantheon of established glass, do you feel? This glass cone in particular supposedly was the third built. More than anything else, it's about the experimentation, the early experimentation with glass in the late 17th century. They're pushing it. They're pushing recipes. They're having a go. 
And I think more than anything else, that's probably what it tells us. So we can lay claim to being quite an entrepreneurial area in the Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Exciting stuff. So my thanks to uh, Vanessa Castagnino, material specialist with Nexus Heritage, for that fascinating insight into how these old relics are providing valuable new evidence and insights into the entrepreneurial nature of our early glassmakers. And as always, if you wish to obtain both current and back issues of our History West Midlands magazine, watch the accompanying presentations, subscribe to our audio resources or simply contact us, then you can do it all by going through the History West Midlands website or the W's historywm.com and following the relevant links. Join me next time for more fascinating insights into the black country. Until then, enjoy your history and thank you for listening.